Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Welcome to New Books and Critical Theory. I'm your host, Dr. David O'Brien. On this episode, I'll be discussing value practices in the life sciences and medicine. Welcome to New Books and Critical Theory. On this episode, I'm going to be talking about an edited collection uh, which has been published by Oxford University Press this year called Value Practices in the Life Sciences and Medicine. Um, it's edited by three researchers, uh, Isabel Dussage, Klaus Frank, Frederick Helgeson, and Francis Lee. Um, the three of them uh, started this project um, at Linköping University um, in Sweden, but um, Isabel has now moved uh, to Uppsala um, to be a researcher at the Centre for Gender Research. So, hello. Hello. Hi there. How are you? Great. Good. You can hear me all. Okay. Um, if we could kick off by uh, maybe the three of you briefly introducing um, yourselves to the listeners, um, and then. Perhaps we'll start talking about uh, this broader question of value. Uh, all right, I can start uh, shortly. My name is uh, Isabel Dussage, and I am a researcher based uh, at the Center for Gender Research in Uppsala University. Uh, I come from the history of science, technology, and medicine, and the research I've been conducting lately has been mostly dealing with the neurosciences of sexuality and gender. Uh, before that, I've been uh, interested in issues of medical visualization and visual culture and the computerization of healthcare uh, from a range of different perspectives. Okay, hi, uh, I'm Klaus Fredrik, or CF for short. Um, so I'm a professor at Technology and Social Change in Linköping, Sweden. Um, my background is uh, in uh, in business studies, but I have, uh, I mean, even my PhD student years worked at the intersection between science and technology studies and economic sociology. First, uh, in in my dissertation on the telecommunications industry, and since uh, around fifteen years uh, in the area of healthcare governance, medical research, and so on. So, um, yeah, that's that's where I am. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I'm Francis Lee. 
I'm working, uh, my background is uh, in a field called technology and social change, which is a specific subject here in Sweden. And I'm, uh, I've been working on the intersection of uh, technology and social change and life science for the past few years. I've written about uh, large-scale biosciences and large-scale protein mapping projects looking at how proteins are expressed in the human body. And I'm interested in, uh, well, I, I think my main interest is in how technology and science and knowledge production are intertwined with politics. Uh, I'm also interested in, for example, uh, digital technologies and how dig digital technologies become valuation machines, how they produce and are used to make values in different settings. That's quite a good place to... Uh... To contextualise the book, I think this this question of of making values. So I, I'd be interested to to kind of hear a bit about why uh, why value and values uh, have become such an important topic um, in social science in, in recent years. Uh, I think in general that values are an important way to look at human matters because values lie at the heart of any human decision making. And values are at the same time social and cultural and emotional, yet they are performed by individuals in specific situations, in specific contexts. So values give us key to understand human conflicts and dilemmas in ways that are uh, quite unique, maybe. Yeah, and I, I think, I mean, uh, I so, so that would be, uh, there's so many empirical um, reasons why, why it's important to study values because people struggle with values in, in, in many areas. But I think, I mean, also from a theoretical point of view, it's important because uh, the very large traditional ways of, of understanding values have often taken them as, as the kind of the, 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 the cause for action, for instance. And, and apparently when we look at... Um, in many settings, I think that people actually are struggling with what what is important here, and and therefore there seems to be a need for other approaches to to understand and appreciate uh, values as as a, as an empirical phenomenon, and and uh, I think that's also part of why it's important to to study it. Hmm. For me, I think uh, the heart of the, of the matter lies in that values are. Uh, at the heart of, of politics, of making what is important in society. I mean, how, what should count? How should it count? How should we measure what counts? Uh, and so on. I mean, it's, uh, it's about making what matters in the world. Uh, and as a kind of consequence of this making of importance and, and, uh, and mattering is also the making of what does not count. I mean, what makes what is made invisible, what is made not valuable. Uh, how how do we make non-value? So I mean, I think values is a topic that we can't really escape if we want to grapple with what how importance is made in, is made in society. The, the book kind of explores this through a series of case studies, but um, before we discuss the individual chapters, I think it'd be worth. Um, saying a little bit more about the kind of um, the context setting that comes in in the opening uh, chapter, the opening essay of the book, where, where you draw that question of you know how are non-values created, how do values work in practice, really, really clearly. I think, uh, and there's a couple of things I'd like to 
to hear about. And, and one is, um, it, it is why it is you've decided to ask the question how something comes to count as value and how other things are kind of not counted uh, as, as values. Um, what, why you've started from that question. Um, and what are the consequences for research when, when we think about values in those ways? Okay, uh, and it's a very uh, a big question, and, and I think yeah. we, we can have several different answers to that one. But, but one, one starting with, I think that, I mean, coming back to what I said about, I mean, uh, we, we were not felt totally comfortable with this, I mean, many major ways to, to, to uh, understand, theoretical ways to understand values, and 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 way uh, open up for making it more I mean open for empirical study how people uh, grapple with values and I mean one way to, to see this if you take a, um, a science and technology studies uh, kind of view on it is what would it what would it uh, mean to to do with values what uh, social sociology of scientific knowledge did with knowledge? 10, 10, 10, 20, 30 years ago when they asked the question, what comes to count as scientific knowledge? I mean, that kind of approach, I mean, in, in a very broad terms, I mean, and, and taking that kind of attitude, but not uh, focusing on, on the epistemic side, but, but more on the values side. Yeah, I think one interesting aspect of, of, of uh, going into values is traditionally... Values are often seen as drivers of human action. I mean, we have all these studies going into how what values people have and how we should develop politics or how the world should be shaped in, in relation to the values that people have. But that kind of misses the point, according to our approach, and, and, and uh, uh, hides how people grapple with making values, struggle with what, how they should relate to the values that other people express or how they make values through different devices. So rather than seeing values as driving human action, we see humans as, as being in the driver's seat and, and producing different types of values and, and grappling with them in, in, in practice. And I think for me, <clears throat> um, there is an aspect of uh, asking the question of, of values that helps us understand what um, that helps us understand the desirability of certain scientific knowledge. Uh, having been studying the relation between uh, biology and feminism uh, for the last uh, years, I've been wondering why certain scientific theories uh, seem to be more popular than others. Uh, be they're more cons quite conservative in terms of uh, worldview or gender views, for example, uh, or uh, or uh, if they're more radical. And I think, I believe that the um, asking questions of values help us, may help us understand why certain kinds of knowledge is considered valuable. Why, why is neuroscientific uh, knowledge of the human for example, uh, considered uh, a valuable uh, resource to understand human action. Uh, why are, is biological knowledge uh, considered uh, a valuable way to understand society or societal problems? Uh, those questions are very big, and the book does not aim to understand to to answer them specifically. 
but that is one corner I come from, so to speak. Uh, I think asking the question of values, how certain kinds of knowledge comes to count as valuable, what it is worth, for whom, for what purposes, uh, help us understand better the place of uh, knowledge and technological interventions in the world. The, the other thing that the book does, which is an important aspect of, of academic writing, is is kind of mark itself out from, from what it's not or, or from what it's it's moving beyond. And, and the two perspectives you, uh, you situate the book in relation to in the introduction are a moral economy perspective and a, a bio-capital perspective on value. And, and I'm interested to know how the book relates to but also move beyond these, uh, these two, two current approaches. Okay, uh, I can start that one. So, um, I mean, how should you say that we are in, in a friendly but critical conversation with those kind of those mm. two perspectives that you mentioned in, yeah. in the introductory chapter and, and, and in several instances of the book? And, and actually, to be fair, uh, I mean, the, the workshop that, that um, kicked this, uh, this book project off was called the moral, the moral Economist in the Life Sciences or something like that. So, so that perspective was there along because... Um, Coming to our concerns, we were interested in, in how values are enacted in, in, in life sciences. And then, of course, the moral economy perspective uh, is a touching stone. But also, as we write in the introduction chapter, we find that, that there are both those perspectives highlight very important aspects of, of medicine and life science. But at the same time, they sometimes are a bit static in what are the values of something or, or out there and, and does not fully open up, we think, uh, for empirical uh, scrutiny, the enactment, ordering and displacement of values, something like that. So, I mean, a critical but friendly or friendly but critical conversation with those two perspectives. We think that we could go further in problematizing the, the value practices in medicine and life science by going beyond those two perspectives. Um, I can say a few words about what I think we, uh, uh, the, those perspectives uh, give us, what they help us see. I think the moral economy perspective is very important uh, in making visible that scientific practices, but also other practices in healthcare and medicine are uh, profoundly shaped by uh, cultural norms and codes of conduct and understandings of what is good and what is not good, what is important and what is not. So I think the moral economy perspective um, is what got us started uh, in thinking in those ways, although we felt the need to go further than that, as CF was uh, describing. And I think from the uh, biocapital literature, uh, we get this very important point that some kind of value or some kinds of values are being produced in the also mundane practices of both science and healthcare and medicine. And that this production of values follows, that is not at, totally at random. Uh, it has some kind of, of organization or some kind of patterns and that those are worth studying. Um, and this is why we relate, I think, to these two bodies of, of theory and research is that they um, 
point out very uh, important considerations about the um, existence of values in the fields we study. Yeah, I think <laughs> the work of Lorraine Dustin has been a, a touchstone for us. As you, I think you mentioned see her. And uh, I mean, she's writing about the virtuous scientist and the virtues of science. So she looks at what kind of characteristics a scientist should have to be a good scientist, or what type of characteristics a good science should have, for example, objectivity or something like that. What is virtuous science? While uh, the biocapital literature looks at how often how uh, economy corrupts uh, the biosciences and looks at how uh, economy is, inf- I mean, inf- is infiltrated or is intertwined with scientific work and how economic uh, forces shape science into something. There's an undertone of, of looking at how, at how economy sh- reshapes science into something that it shouldn't be. And we, we, we think that these perspectives have very, very valuable insights, but we think that they kind of stop short of actually looking at the performance of value, because, I mean, economy, the economic value of the life sciences is made in practices, and the valuation of, and, and production of what is a virtue and virtuous scientist is also made in practice. And we think that these kind of perspectives, they kind of create a, a static arena for, for looking at how, how these how they reshape something, rather than looking at how actual scientists struggle with them in, in, in everyday work because they and they do I mean uh, as we as several chapters in the book highlight I mean, we have uh, KOL struggling with how to work for the pharmaceutical industry while upholding their their oath to uh, the medical profession and so on so or, or scientists that create companies but still want to work for the human good. I mean, there, it's a constant struggle for, for people in the life sciences and in medicine to, to, to kind of grapple with the values. So, I mean, look, us uh, to come into this struggle with predefined notions of what values are is what we think these perspectives miss. Understanding the, um, I guess, the kind of the boundary making around um, particular elements of, of good science or, or, or bad science or appropriate or inappropriate but behaviors is absolutely crucial but as you say going into it with kind of fixed perspectives on what those values are misses the way um, values are created almost kind of in, in motion and a, and a dynamic and the book uh, deals with this uh, in four different ways I think uh, by thinking about conflicts uh, thinking about markets uh, thinking about bodies and thinking about knowledge. And I wonder if we could take uh, the four sections in turn with, with maybe perhaps one, uh, perhaps two examples from, from the chapters in each four sections. So if we begin with what are the sort of uh, boundaries of acceptable behavior for the life sciences, um, whether it's to do with people who lead opinions, um, the boundaries between medicine and, and the pharmaceuticals uh, historically, um, or in terms of how the biochemist um, works? Mm-hmm. <coughs> well, I mean, uh, the question, uh, I mean, um, you, you sent us some questions before this uh, yeah. recording, and, and, and you phrased the question, what are the boundaries of acceptable, acceptable behavior in the life sciences? And it's interesting because we are always... Uh, faced with the same, we're often faced with the same question. Anyway, uh, what 
are values, what are something. It's an ontological question about yeah, how yeah. things are in the world. And I think perhaps uh, what we, we were trying to emphasize also in relation to the biocapital literature and how uh, things are made and remade in practice. So in, in the question of KOLs, then, like uh, these key opinion leaders that Sergio Sismondo is writing about in the book, uh, pharmaceutical, uh, the pharmaceutical industry uh, pays uh, doctors to go and represent them at different talks and uh, in different key spaces in, in, in relation to how to get people to prescribe their pharmaceutical uh, stuffs. So what we're interested in, or what Sergio is writing about, is how this is a constant struggle then in trying to negotiate different types of moral boundaries or economic boundaries that are in place, but they're constantly shifting and made. So, for example, how can uh, a KOL uh, reconcile working for the pharmaceutical industry uh, while still trying to uphold being an objective scientist in some cases, or being uh, a, a good physician in other cases. So he's, he's writing about how these KOL's key opinion leaders uh, try to reconcile different value systems and de- make the boundaries between their, these different value systems. And it's a, it's a process that is both emotionally uh, and uh, uh, economically uh, difficult for them. So they try to kind of uh, use different types of arguments to reconcile their own uh, conscience in some cases towards their payment uh, and so on. And the same goes for, for uh, the, ca- the Sven Wiedmann's case in the book where he writes about plagiarism, a, a, a historical case where where there's a discussion about what is plagiarism and publication Priority. Who gets the priority in terms of who published first? And this is also then a a negotiation between different key leaders in in the field that he's studying. Uh, What is acceptable behavior? It's not clear cut. It's not laid down in a law. And even if there are kind of codes of conduct, it's a constant matter of negotiation. So what we we would like to say, then, rather than looking at the looking at what the boundaries of acceptable behavior are in the life sciences, the ontological kind of statement, we would like to look at the performative statement and look at how are boundaries of acceptable behavior made by different actors. So how does, how does this work for, uh, for markets? Okay, so um, the, the book has a section, I think it's called The Markets for as Carrier for Health or something like that. Mm-hmm. And um, there's three uh, distinct different uh, studies uh, for different areas in that section. And and I think that all three uh, contributions to that section clearly shows how uh, efforts to work with with more kind of markets, ways of ordering, um, involves, I mean, many d- difficult questions for, for those involved in 
Yeah, I mean, what should count when making this into a more market market based uh, approach for provision of healthcare, for instance, like in the in the in the uh, uh, study about the uh, Netherlands uh, healthcare system by Tanzir and Iraq and colleagues, or for creating a market for for the development of malaria vaccine, as, as described by Daniel Nayland and Elena Semakova, or indeed when I mean. Making a system for allocating um, organs, transplant organs in the in the in the UK, which is a study by by Philip Roscoe from St Andrews. I mean, and all these three chapters show how how the efforts to develop or, or making a market uh, more market like system for for doing. Uh, I mean, in, engaging with healthcare also surfaces a lot of of, of grappling with values. Um, but I think also another kind of um, broad takeaway message from this section is, of course, that, I mean, um, it's not the market solutions that, that uh, or the, the, the market modes of ordering that create this, the, the struggle of to enact the Northern displaced many different values. I mean, the, the many different values would be at stake anyway, but maybe it is the kind of the, the market initiatives uh, um, reshapes the problem in a specific way and maybe also makes them even more kind of, 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 of salient but I, or, or, or visible, especially if they're, I mean, in, as all these three cases are cases where thing, things are not fully black boxed yet. So they are very kind of, uh, it, um, the, the value conflicts are, are, are very articulate and, and people are working with how to distinguish and how to define what should count as a fair system for allocating organs, or what should count as an uh, uh, efficient way to uh, allocate organs, of course. So, so, But I wouldn't say that, that those kind of um, uh, questions would be uh, yeah. Um, absent if uh, if you had would have a you know, completely non market way of ordering things, but I mean market becomes an intervention if you would like to, that 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 uh, produces a lot of work or value practice in in dealing with the the, the value problems. And I think that all three chapters, as I mentioned in the section, very clearly shows how. So I mean, market reforms is seems to be a very interesting site to to uh, I mean to look at. Um, the creation of stakes, the ordering of, 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 of values, and of, of course also figuring out the relations between uh, um, the epistemic and, and the values and so on. Yeah, so I think that that's, that's uh, a broad message from, from the, these uh, three chapters in that section. The, the process of, of ordering um, you were talking about is, is really crucial um, when we're thinking about lives being uh, counted as valuable or, or actually not counted as valuable. And, and the third section has got three chapters that engage with this um, in terms of, of living beings, whether kind of um, genetically developed or created or, or in terms of um, things like prenatal screening um, d- during uh, pregnancy. So, so I wonder if you, you could talk about the, that kind of process from these three chapters. Yes, the three chapters in that section of the book <clears throat> deal with um, pretty different uh, cases. Uh, shortly, one of them uh, by Christina Storm is uh, about the attempt to uh, create and market a new form of fish, the fresh cod. And the whole chapter is about the necessity to create new market devices and 
and policy instruments and to alter life forms, this life cycle of the fish in order to make it uh, possible to, um, to create a product that can be, uh, that can be um, advertised for uh, and consumed in certain manners. Uh, this chapter is very much about how these different sets of values, how different sets of values are entangled and and uh, uh, worked with by um, uh, the people involved in different different positions. It's all both about biotechnological, agricultural, innovation, and um, and other uh, and several other levels of practice. Um, and this is this is about adapting um, organisms, their conditions of life, and markets uh, to each other. I would say uh, another chapter by Kerry Fries addresses what zoos deal with uh, after leaving um, an economy of hunting and gathering. Zoos have been. Uh, repositioning themselves as uh, promoters of biological diversity uh, by making animals in the zoo through biotechnological interventions such as cloning of species. And there, the uh, questions or dilemmas arise as of which animals should be saved or should be preserved, which species uh, should be invested in, on which basis. Uh, and the struggles about these different um, principles. Uh, so this is about notions of genetic value and different notions of genetic value and genetic diversity and um, different concepts for zoos. Uh, Elena Lovis' chapter deals with the uh, prenatal diagnosis, and it shows... Uh, so now we're moving to speaking about human lives. And uh, Levy deals with how uh, prenatal diagnosis, I'm sorry, PNDs, <laughs> prenatal diagnostic technologies, mm-hmm. were uh, transformed into a, a routine diagnosis historically uh, in France and in Western countries. And this refers to PND, re- refers to a cluster of techniques that provide information on the fetus. And they were historically promoted uh, with uh, for the detection of um, uh, Down syndrome, and with emphasis on women's choices, um, building on pregnant women's concern for the best of the children. Um, but uh, what the author shows there is that PND and its generalization, its routinization as a procedure, has been. Uh, more shaped by the health professionals' values than by pregnant women's. Um, this means that an emphasis on epidemi- epidemiological concerns and ways of thinking, uh, health economic considerations related to those, uh, were more decisive in the way these technologies were shaped, implemented, uh, whereas the we could the end users we can see women here, had little input on the content of the tests or the availability or the conditions of use. Um, So these three chapters obviously deal with very different kinds of considerations on life and bodies, but what they 
highlight is that uh, lives and living bodies acquires worth within very specific systems of values that are shaped by professional values, uh, by politics, by ethics, and by, um, I want to say, uh, history of professional values as well, um, and a his- a political histories. Um, I'll stop there, I think. Cool. Um, the, the last section of the book uh, is where your three respective chapters come together. Um, and I, I suppose we, we might contrast um, the last section of the book being about knowledge, being about practices in labs, um, being about um, almost sort of um, scientific uh, disciplines in the case of something like neuroscience with, with the previous section um, on, on bodies and, and living beings. But they do have uh, overlaps and, and continuities. So I wonder if you could talk me through the uh, the last section of the book. Sure. Uh, I'll, I'll start with uh, my chapter, cool. which, is, uh, uh, which is about a large-scale mapping project in Sweden, where scientists uh, are seeking funding for mapping all proteins expressed by the genome in the human body. And what I, what I found interesting in looking at this process of seeking funding, of creating the, such a large-scale bioscience project of mapping thousands of proteins in the body, was how two different kind of uh, produced two different ideas about science and industry relations, about science and industry, how they should work together, how they exist together. And Coming to coming to this case and looking at these different science foundations, it's Wellcome Trust, the British Foundation, and a Swedish foundation called the Wallenberg, uh, Knut and Alice Wallenberg Foundation. I thought it was industri- interesting to think about how kind of critical approaches to studying science industry relations and how these kind of... Uh, prescriptive ideas about triple helix, creating a science industry nexus, uh, uh, like Silicon Valley, for example, Uh, how they kind of have mirror images of what the world of science and industry is. So we have like an idea, both in politics, in critical studies of uh, science industry relations, and in prescriptive Uh, studies of science-industry relations that presupposes that there is a boundary between science-industry and that it has uh, specific uh, values tied to this boundary, which values should be on which side of the boundary. (coughs) And I think uh, what's interesting uh, is when you take a valuographic approach to, to looking at this boundary is look at how, rather than looking at how this boundaries transgressed or how it should be organized, it's interesting to look at how how this boundary is made and remade in negotiations, for example, with science foundations, and how these negotiations about how science and industry should work together, how they have very large consequences for what good science uh, is made out to be. So, I mean, the, the, the consequences of look, looking at 
the construction of the boundary between science and industry is that we get an understanding of different value systems that are put in, in, in play in science and in industry. And if we look at this specific case that I, that I, that I studied then, the, the human protein atlas, which produces uh, millions of beautiful images of, of protein locations in the human body, uh, we can look, see how two different ideas about what a map of all the human proteins in the body, how two different ideas of this map emerge. And one, one idea is how, how it becomes like a treasure map almost. It becomes like, it becomes a, the terrain is not so interesting. It's only the route to the, the, the X on the map that's interesting. We've, we, only features that lead to the X on the map are interesting. So which makes the map almost, I mean, the features that are not interesting for finding the X are almost invisible. So the proteins that are not a map to a treasure in the in form of a pharmaceutical uh, uh, concoction or something like that, uh, a medicine or a molecule that can uh, create diagnosis, those proteins in, are not interesting at all to, to investigate. It's a very particular idea about what science should do and how, how to go about this type of science. The other... Uh, the other side of this map would be then a topo- topographical map, which one of the one with which the Wellcome Trust kind of uh, wanted the project to be was a, was a map that could be used by the scientific community at large. And that kind of ontological idea about mapping mapping the protein in the human body uh, creates a completely different uh, uh, understanding of what knowledge is valuable, then it's all, all knowledge, all the understanding of different proteins and how they interact or how they don't interact becomes valuable. So we have uh, completely different sets of values being put in play with, with very large consequences for, for, for the scientific work in the lab. Uh, so, for example, in, in the, the project was eventually founded as a treasure map then, uh, and this created... Uh, Valuation of certain types of methods and certain types of molecules in the laboratory. So the idea about how which relations science or industry should have also kind of filters down into the, the vials and, and the practices in, in the lab and the machines and how they were organized in the lab. So we have have these large scale ideas about how science and industry should relate to each other, which then filter down into uh, different valuations of, in this case, it's antibodies. So I think <laughs> by then moving beyond this presupposed boundary of science-industry relations, we, we can kind of open up for a field of understanding kind of the, the negotiations and the effects of these uh, larger ideas about lab in the lab and what molecules, what knowledges, what kind of uh, science should we be organizing. And I think uh, the more interesting question is not going in there and saying economy corrupts science completely uh, or or that to say that uh, economy is needed to create a forward momentum in society and science is part of that. I mean, it's more complex than that. And by kind of taking a step back and not presupposing this analytical division, we can get a hold of a whole new set of problems and a whole new set of uh, 
value enactments in the life sciences. That, that idea of a new set of problems, a new set of value in, enactments is a good place to uh, to start to conclude, I think, because one of the things that comes up um, in the final chapter of the book um, is, is the idea of valueography um, and is one of the ways you, you think through how we might be able to go beyond um, the life sciences and medicine and start to think about other areas of the social world with this um, performative and, and enacting um, sort of starting point that, that, that you have in the book. Yeah, so, um, I mean, um, to be honest, it was a, um, it was a, it's always a struggle to conclude these kind of books. I mean, and, and, and also, I mean, how, how do you um, draw together, I mean, the many, many insights you can get from, from, the, the, from the contributions. Mm. And, and, and so, so we, we, I mean, quite some of the effort in, in doing the book uh, was, was in this final chapter. And, and uh, we landed on, I mean, not, of course, ending, we didn't want to end in what values are at stake in the life sciences and medicine, because that would kind of fail the whole project. Yeah, but, the so, so, uh, and then we thought, what can we learn from the chapters in ways to understand or investigate the value practices and, and, we, we built from that. So, I mean, that's what, when we, we coined the, the term valeography as the kind of an empirical oriented research program to study the enactment ordering and displacing of values. And of course, how, how can we draw insights in approaches from the different chapters? And we should say here that, 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 that the, the idea of valeography, it, it draws on, on a tradition of, of, um, coining terms like Peter Deere, he, he coined the term epistemography. I mean, the empirical study of what comes to count as knowledge or Michael Lynch has suggested etiography for the study of, of the practices around what comes as ethics. And, and Steve Wolga has suggested technography along the same lines. Uh, I mean, the empirical study of technology and so on. So, so and, and then valeography then, of course, using as, uh, as, as a label then for a pragmatic uh, uh, practice-based approach for the study of, of, of values and, and their enactment and so on. And, and, and so what we do there in, in, the, in, the, um, in the final chapter is to see and kind of tease out uh, the strategies that we have seen in the different chapters, uh, chapter contributions in how to see, um, I mean, to make visible the, the value, values uh, at stake and, and the enactment and ordering of values and so on. So we work with questions of, of compensation. It seems to be a very kind of uh, often heated uh, kind of area and therefore many values are articulated and, and, and organized and so on. Studying devices and and, and I mean, and that's a clear uh, example that would be Philip Roscoe's uh, chapter on, on devices for allocating organs. I mean, studying devices and their construction and, and because there many of the different values at stake become very, very articulated and so on. Um, controversies more generally, generally as another kind of, of, of approach. Um, uh, tracing over time that values are not stable over time and, and uh, the, the chapter by Ilana Leve that uh, Issa mentioned previously is a very uh, different, uh, different um, uh, settings. So, I mean, that, that's, uh, and I would say that, I mean, uh, uh, it's more of a beginning than an end. Of course, it's a conclusion of the book, but we could see that, that there's so much more you could develop with, with uh, uh, how to develop a value graphic uh, research program. We, we saw that 
there seems to be some kind of methodological tactics or strategies that we can you can further develop, of course, but draw on. And we also see that that it can be put to use for for different purposes, like for instance, working with with uh, different um, concerns you have, and also I mean maybe even intervene and so on. So that that's the kind of um, ideas we have for 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 the value graphic um, research program. And the program has an associated journal now. Not, I mean, you're you're, you're thinking about the valuation studies. I mean, valuation studies, I would say, is is a journal that ties to the idea of valuography, of course. But but the valuation studies is um, is is more focused on on valuation as uh, um, as a set of practices that take place in many different uh, places. I mean, far beyond life sciences, of course, we have grading of students, we have pricing of houses and all that kind of stuff. So you could say that that studying valuation as a practice is a valuographic tactic, so to say. So the, I mean, valuation studies focuses on one kind of valuographic uh, um, uh, tactics for studying uh, the, the enactment of values. But I, another angle, of course, a journal has to have a much uh, more eclectic and 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 and, and broader uh, uh, audience. So that I mean, that would be maybe. Uh, I mean, of course, there are are contributions in the journal of valuation studies that that are not uh, pragmatist because I mean that's it's not the kind of. Uh, uh, necessary condition for for studying valuation practices, but I w- would say that the, the valuographic approach, as we describe it in the final chapter, is uh, clearly a pragmatist approach to the study of values. And um, w- will there be future collected editions or, or books for for um, the valuographic um, approach? Yeah, sure, absolutely. One one upshot uh, from 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 uh, this volume uh, could be said to be. Uh, an algorithm network. The studies of social studies of algorithms uh, has kind of uh, come out of this collaboration. Uh, we have lots of the authors in the book and, and other members of this. And the point of this network is to look at uh, algorithms as machines of valuation in society. Looking at how algorithms interface with, for example, an organ allocation that Philip Roscoe has written about. How algorithms interface with for example, public health. Uh, for example, in, in the in the surveillance out, out, outbreaks of disease, disease outbreaks. Uh, this field is moving more and more to this automatic algorithmic uh, surveillance of, of how disease is spread and so on. And so we have how how, how uh, algorithms interface with uh, different parts of the social. Also, we have people looking at how algorithms at the tax agency select who should be audited and so on. So, I mean, looking at algorithms can be one inroads and one, one thing that we're working with to develop the study of valuations in society, looking at how technical apparatuses kind of embody certain ideas about what is important, what is valuable and so on. I could also mention another thing. I mean, Francis and I, we had a project that started around the same time as we, we set out to, to, to do this collaborative book project. And it's a project about the, the valuations done when designing medical experiments. And, and the question we are interested in is when, when people do design for a medical experiment, they have to decide upon what kind of knowledge is worth pursuing and what kind of knowledge 
uh, is not worth pursuing, what stones is worth turning and what stones to, to leave lying, so to say. And, and that project has kind of worked in parallel with the project. There's no empirics in, 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 the, in this volume from that project, but, but we are working on, on, on a book on that project. Uh, and it will, yeah, I mean, come out and it will, of, of course, clearly be a, a kind of a value graphic study of, of, of medical design as, as, a, as a practice where many values are at stake and people, I mean, the people doing the designing of medical experiments have to sort and enact, uh, I mean, what, what should count here? And, and uh, yeah, so that's, that's kind of, uh, I wouldn't say an upshot because it's a kind of more of a, of a twin, but a, a somewhat younger twin because it's not kind of to full fruition yet. So. And on my side, I, um, there are two projects I've been thinking of pursuing where I think the evaluative approach might be enlightening. One of them is uh, deals with the question of uh, um, the neuroculture of violence and aggression. So issues of uh, there will be a study of people living with um, with issues of uh, aggression and with neurodiagnosis um, of different sorts. And values might be a way to approach. Uh, the dilemmas and conflicts uh, and the interface between uh, lay persons and uh, patients and professionals in fruitful ways. Um, another very different alley is a project I've been considering for a long time, which uh, in which I think a valuographic approach will be very fruitful. Uh, that will be for a, a kind of political history of health screenings and health registers in Sweden, that that gets close to what uh, Francis was talking about, I think, about the um, um, algorithms and the computerizations of healthcare. Uh, anyway, there, I think the, uh, the value approach will be interesting to, uh, to use as a tool for historical investigation. Mm. So, I mean, it has been done in some ways with for example, um, notions of moral economies, but I think it will be it will be an interesting theoretical way to uh, get into maybe well known, uh, not always empirically well known, but uh, otherwise well known kinds of questions or historical developments uh, in the modern or late modern states uh, in terms of healthcare and the way it relates to power and population. Um, yes, what triggered me in the Swedish context there was uh, a poster by the left-wing party, I think, in the 70s, which was called Health Screenings for All, as a political peril in a demonstration. And that has spurred me to think in terms of, you know, what, why would you value something so much as part of a political movement uh, as to proclaim it being a common good? There's something fairly exotic about picking just health controls as a political peril seen from today's with the with today's uh, gaze that sounds absolutely fascinating and incredibly eclectic as well I guess um, reflecting the core themes but also the range of, uh, of essays and chapters that are in the book Thanks for listening to New Books in Critical Theory, where we are discussing value practices in the life sciences and medicine, which is published by Oxford University Press in 2000.
Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. 